privilege to, um, to deliver the Word of God to you, and it was completely blessing for me to uh, study this text, and um, there's a lot here, so um, I hope that through the Word of God that you'll be blessed this Sunday. Let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this worship. We thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for just your blessings upon us. We thank you for the life that you have given to Mike, and thank you for his testimony uh, of Jesus Christ in his life. We thank you for just this worship this day again. I pray that, uh, that I may just be used as your mediator to deliver the word of God to the saints this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Those of you know that um, I've gone through a little bit of a paradigm shift in my recent life. Um, I, most of you know, if you know who I am, um, I love food. I love all kinds of food and a lot of food that are bad for you. And uh, it's a paradigm shift I've gone through where I see my, the food I eat and who I become when I eat these things. And I have a, uh, I'm a diabetic, so there are a lot of things that I grew up basically 36 years of my life eating rice, as many of you. And that accumulation of rice in a diabetic is not good. So in the last month or so, I've completely changed um, what I eat. I watch what I eat. I've cut down my carbohydrate intake into probably 5% of what it used to take in. Pretty literally almost cut everything out of my life, except what comes in like vegetables and fruit and whatnot. You know, then I exercise um, almost every day for last month. Um, it's, uh, but I remind myself, I'm not doing this as a diet to slim down or anything, just I'm, I remind myself, if I lose weight, great. It's part of life. But it's, this is the life that I decided to live from this point on, to be a person with the right ingredients in, um, in my life through diet and exercise, to live hopefully a healthy life, to be around for my children. And I know that, that it, my life is in um, sovereign control of God, but I need to do my part as well. So there's a lot of ingredients that goes into one's life, and I see that my, in my life in, a, in recent years. Um, so I preach this at Tustin Flock when they bring snacks. Basically, they bring stuff I absolutely can't eat anymore. I told them one time, I went to one extreme and said, I said, you might as well roll out some bullets on the, on the counter and give me a gun and just, but instead of dying a slow death, just get rid of me now. But um, that's a little bit extreme, but the ingredients in one's life is important. And I kind of use that as this text. There's ingredients in here, what Peter gives us, that is key, and he also, tells us in verse 12 as a reminder. This whole book is pretty much a reminder to the Christians how you are to live. And so as I tell myself how am I to live physically, Peter tells us how to live spiritually. It's interesting. Apostle Peter is a unique figure. He's obviously the four Gospels, the obviously the leader of the disciples of Christ. He's the most outspoken one. You know that Peter wore his motions on his sleeves, and I could relate to that. He denied Christ three times. And imagine when he saw our Lord across the courtyard before he died, knowing that he denied him three times. The emotions went through him. And Peter is an interesting man. He was a fisherman by trade. 
He certainly didn't have the educational privileges and advantages that Apostle Paul had. He grew up probably with living with his hands. He was governed by his impulses. But he nonetheless became an apostle of Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus Christ. I think through that, that night, that eventful night, um, that when he denied Christ three times, made him who he became, an extraordinary leader. You see this, an uneducated man, basically, a man who worked with his hands, writes this, if you study First Peter and Second Peter, writes an extraordinary letter. You know, the, you see in the, these two letters the inspiration of God writing through such magnificent, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and presenting it to its readers. The divine inspiration of Scripture speaks clearly through First and Second Peter. You know, at this time, basically Second Peter, he's facing his death. In verse 14, verse, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 says, Knowing that surely I must put off my tent, just as Lord Jesus Christ showed me, moreover I will be careful I will be careful to ensure you always to have reminder of these things after my decease. So we're approaching Peter's death, and Peter knows it. He says he even relates his death to what Jesus Christ showed him, of crucifixion. We all know that later on, Peter was crucified upside down, that he wanted to be distinguished, that he is not Jesus Christ. Just as a uh, study, just to, um, as a precursor to this text, I'm going to be focusing on chapter, uh, verses 5 to 11, but we can't go without actually doing the previous verse and actually going up to verse 12. The first Peter was written uh, pretty much right after when Nero burned down Rome. So Christians were being used as scapegoats. So on, in, the midst of, in the midst of this difficult distress, Peter writes this letter to the believers when the suffering was escalating and escalating. The purpose was to... that. First Peter was to write to the Christians how to live victoriously under difficult circumstances. That he, he extols and exhorts uh, the privileges to focus on, the believers to po focus on the blessings and the privileges instead of the suffering. The suffering is a part of life as a Christian. It's interwoven. The blessings and sufferings go together. Then we go to Second Peter. It's, it's first and second Peter, but has a complete different purpose. The main point, the purpose of second Peter is to fight against false apostles, false teachers. Either they were already present in the church, or they were starting to creep in. This letter was written about 60 to 65 AD. Like I said, Peter was approaching his death. Okay. We know that he was somewhere near Rome. We don't know exactly where he wrote this, so, but he was under distress. But he sensed the dangers, the apostasy within the church, or coming apostasy in the church. Peter, at the end, um, gives us powerful words about his death as well. It is a testament to the Christians how to live and to fight false teachers and live a successful Christian life. But he tells them here over and over again, he reminds them what is the privilege, what is at stake for a Christian. There are two sections of Second Peter basically. One is an exhortation of the endurance and loyalty to Christ 
then there is an also an appeal, secondly, appeal for loyalty to Christ in the midst of heresy. Okay. So the letter was for the Christians to expose false teachers and defeat the penetration of these wrong doctrines. So Peter refers to many times here in this text, in this book and letter actually, knowledge. knowledge the word knowledge were, um, occurs 16 times in two short chapters. Knowledge. So way to fight knowledge, basically to fight false teachers, is to have knowledge and remember what you know. Peter also reminds us through this text that Christians, pers Christians' personal faith should not be static. It should be ever-growing. It should be continual growth. That Christians are to be certain in their growth and be certain in the election as a believer. Therefore, we grow. We could tell by the, what Peter responds, how he responds here, you could tell how false teachers were beginning or already conducting themselves. So Peter draws down the battle lines. I titled this um, essential, no, uh, Remembering the Essential Truths. So there are four essential truths I want to cover today. Number one is what God has done already. What God has done already. Number two, what Christians should add or strive for. What Christians should add or strive for. Number three, what are the consequences? What are the consequences? And lastly, number four, what Christians must remember. What Christians must remember. So let's go to what God has done already. And this is verses basically two three and four, I'll focus on three and four. It says, His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of Him. Okay, obviously His refers to Christ. Christ is a source of power. It's where we get the power. Power of resurrection. Okay, it says all things flow from the knowledge. But you notice in this text, the verb is has. So once we become a Christian, it's past. Okay? It has happened. It is our knowledge of what has happened. And this word knowledge again is a key word in this passage. It um, implies intimate knowledge, knowing Christ in a genuine personal way. Sharing of life, sharing of your life with Christ based upon repentance and faith in Him through truths of Scripture, the Word of God. So through Christ, because we have this knowledge of what has happened, what God has given us, we could live vibrant, full Christian lives as believers because we have that knowledge in God pertains to life and godliness is there. So we could conclude, the failures to live, the reason why we fail in Christian life that we get succumbed by sin and all the distractions is basically one thing. It's not because of God's supply. God's supply, what He has supplied you in the beginning when you became a Christian is full 
for all godliness. It's not a matter of God anymore. The supply is abundant. But it is our knowledge that gets cluttered, gets distracted. Okay? It is an eternal source. Until the day we meet him, it's there for a believer. But we forget. And we talk about that. Paul refers to later on as blindness and just forgetting. And verse 4 says, By which are given to us exceedingly great and precious promise that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is world through lust. God has given us now the future. From the past, He has given us the future. Future, actually, what, this is still what God has done. God has done your future, right, as a Christian. We are to be, we're going to be what? It says, partakers of divine nature. We're going to be in a glorified form one day. That's the promise. That's already, what, although it's in the future, it's done. Okay? It says it's precious. It means there's absolutely no equal, no equal value, period, anywhere in this universe. We have escaped. Do you see the language here? It's, it's quite vivid, the way Peter puts it. It says escaping, which refers to completely evading. What did we evade? We evaded spiritual death through Jesus Christ. <coughs> It's a promise Christ offers to us. That is the basis which we grow as Christians in our lives. What do we become as we grow? What is our goal as we grow as Christians? As we grow, we become Christ's likeness. That is our goal. So secondly, what believers should add in their lives. What I do now in my, this health deal I have going on, I drink a big 32 ounce, pretty much, a protein shake. The ingredients I put in, I put in um, they call, what you call whey protein. It's the purest form of protein. And you put it in with non-fat milk, put some, I make a, my wife does, and makes a smoothie out of it. Put about three or four drops of fruit, some ice, and they're called flaxseed oil. I have no idea what that is. Some type of oil. But it's supposed to be good for you. So you, have, you put it in a blender. I drink that. I had this this morning. Actually, I woke, I woke up at about four, 5.40, finished off putting final touches on the sermon. Then I worked out this morning. So I, these days I get up way early and I work out. I probably drive my family crazy a little bit. But um, I have a lot of energy to do that. And uh, I have a lot of balance in my step. So I put all these ingredients in to hopefully become uh, healthier and be more productive person, period. Not only here at my work and as a, as a father and husband. Here, we, Peter lists seven ingredients of Christians to add to our lives. Okay? Add to our lives. God has promised us what is in the, future, in the past and the future. That's locked, sealed, and delivered. But this new birth as a Christian does not rule out Christian human activity. Okay? It says, for this very reason in verse 5, the reason is because of our new birth, Peter urgently calls for a progressive and active and growing Christian lives. It's not sit back and rest time. It's not to be content. It's march forward. Okay? The grace of God demands this. 
The grace of God which you have experienced demands this, but it also enables you to, to do this, to, to draw out the efforts of man. Our job is to put up that effort, whatever you can. Every ounce you can muster, we are to strive for this. Okay. We know that faith, when God grants us faith, it's a beginning point of Christian's life. It is a genuine faith that res, uh, results in God's impartation of in, eternal life from a, a dead person, a dead being. But so having received this faith and these things, we are to add these ingredients. Verse 5 says, apply all diligence in your faith supply. Okay. I like the NIV translation better. It says, make every effort to add to your faith. So basically, the faith, the foundation is given. What are we adding to it? It says, make every effort, which requires zeal, seriousness, and determination in pursuit of what? Holiness. If you see these seven ingredients, which I'll cover shortly, it is pursuit of holiness. Okay? These seven characteristics, just because you become a Christian, just doesn't happen. We need to pursue it. It doesn't happen accidentally. Okay? Just make every effort, which is giving it your all. Okay? It is the idea of achieving excellence in a certain field. Like an Olympic athlete, you, just, you train and train and train to achieve certain level of excellence, to be the best. Okay. You know, the word supply or add is an interesting word. Okay. The Greek word is epikorego. I practiced a lot to say that. It's epikorego. <laughs> There's six syllables in that word. In Greek culture, in Athenian drama festivals would go on. Okay, there was drama, play, or a chorus that would go on in a theater. So when this play would go on, usually the funding to put this play on in a, this festival would be a wealthy individual who is called Koregos, who would supply and pay for all the expenses for this play to happen in a theater. And it's generally a very costly effort to put on this. Okay. The Koregos is the person who supplies that. Okay? He costs, he puts up the money and the actors act out the play. So the idea is, we're the actors. We're the actors. What do we have to do? We have to, as actors, you have to memorize your lines, rehearse and practice so that you could put on an excellent play. So the correlation is, God is Koregos. He has supplied everything for this, your life to be vibrant as a Christian, but we have to do our part. Okay? It's basically adding, doing our part. So in Peter's view, God has written through the blood of Jesus Christ a script for us as Christians. And it was costly, right? It was costly. Jesus paid with his life. So Christians should co-engage with him in this operation to grow, to strive for holiness because God is holy. 
Okay? So the sense of theater is your life. Okay? It's expending genuine, diligent effort to memorize your script, to act it out, be an excellent actor. But Christians, we're not acting in real life, but we have to do our part. It takes hard work. So let's go to these seven categories. I could divide these seven categories into three groups as well. I mean, seven um, characters, three groups. The first two is goodness and knowledge, and you could characterize them by character of our faith. It's their character that reflect our faith. Second group, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. And five verses five through seven, so you could follow along with me. It's the inward disposition of a Christian, of a believer, that we should strive for. And last two, kindness and love, is relationship to others. Okay? First one, in the NSB, um, says moral excellence, or some of them says goodness or virtue, to add virtue or moral, good, uh, moral excellence or goodness. Okay? It's excellence in life. It's a very rare word in, in, in the Bible, it's more of a secular Greek. It refers to proper fulfillment of something. It's achieving something. Okay? Some of you set out to achieve a certain degree, certain level of, I don't know, test scores, or just in life, certain things that you set a goal to do. And setting a high goal and meeting, doing the excellent things so that you achieve this goal. Okay? Just, you know, the, the quote, being all that you could be. That's the idea. So you add to your life, your faith. So you have this faith. So you're adding all these things. Okay, this excellence is Christ-likeness, what we're shooting for. Okay? So when we achieve these things, when we shoot for moral excellence, that we're shooting for what? True human excellence as a Christian is what? Christ-likeness. So when we achieve this excellence as a Christian, it becomes attractive. You achieve excellence as a Christian, Christ-like. It'll be attractive. People will be curious. So you have the platform to speak about Christ in a greater way because you have achieved excellence. It's a moral excellence. The people, your integrity is clean. Secondly, Knowledge, again, this is another key word. Okay. The knowledge in this text, verse 5, is different from verse 3. Uh, it's more, uh, it means more recognition, full knowledge, or discernment. Okay. It also means thoroughly acquainted with. Okay. It's less of a spiritual term than chapter, um, uh, verse 3. It's more of the general knowledge, the practical wisdom, okay, and knowledge by implications. So the word closely resembles wisdom. Okay, it's an in- intelligent appreciation of God that that we put into practice. So knowledge gained through practical exercise of goodness, we put this into practice. Okay. There's many things in our lives that come across. Even we have a lot of biblical data, biblical principles. It's applying these things in a practical way in our lives. And that's what Peter is teaching us. So in this context, to fight the false teachers, okay? to fight falsehood is to know, be wise. Okay? 
It's processing biblical data to make biblical decisions in a wise, practical manner. Okay. Number three. Okay, this is the section of three, four, and five or inward dispositions of Christians. Number, first one of that group is number three in this list is self-control or self-discipline. And the true knowledge, if you have knowledge in God, it will lead to self-control. So what is opposite of self-control? Excess, lust, passion. So what it's saying here is control your lust, your passions, and the excess, excess of your life. Okay. When we act upon passions and emotions, what happens? It weakens the mind. The mind is not at work, our emotions at work. Okay? Self-control imparts strength. So literally, the self-control means control your passions. Don't be controlled by them. Because what happens when we're controlled by emotions and feelings? We tend to what? Sin. Okay? It means to master one's mind, one's mood. Don't be controlled by circumstances or feelings, but rather be controlled by, we should be controlled by, captive by Christ. That's what we need to remember here. Number four, bearing up under um, trials, perseverance. Okay? This is patiently enduring amidst suffering. Okay? And there are times, through this new lifestyle I have, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes I have certain cravings. I'm getting better. You know, I wish I could have like pizza one day. You know, some t someone told me that pizza is basically sugar on, um, fat on sugar for a human body. And after I heard that, I couldn't touch pizza anymore. So um, there's things you just can't do anymore. But amidst difficult circumstances, enduring. Now I love, I use this whenever perseverance comes up or enduring difficult times, I always use this. I've used this two or three times um, in my sermons. On June 4th, 1940, in Council of Commons, Winston Churchill, his speech, We Shall Fight on the Beaches. It was the lowest point of uh, British history. There, the, the, the Germans, the Nazi regime was just pounding the British and um, they were just retreating back. France has fallen, they're at their footsteps and he stands up and he rallies the country. It's sort of like what George Bush did, but you know, this is at the brink of maybe losing the, um, you know, the mighty British Empire. And he says this, even the large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grists of the Gestapo, and all odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on into the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight in the seas and the oceans. We shall fight in growing confidence, growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whenever the co whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And that's perseverance is exactly the attitude. We shall never surrender. Okay? And it's courage against all odds. When you have the worst things going on in your life, there's absolutely, you can't see the end. What, you, what, we, what do we focus on? What God has already done for your future. We have hope in that. 
Because if we, what's the worst thing that could happen to us? We could die. That could be the best thing to happen to you. In certain cases. It's a deep, understanding deep realities of God. Last two um, characteristics. It's relationship. Godly character. This is number five. Actually, this we're still in the party. Godliness is um, godly character out of devotion. It's still inward disposition. It's basically reverent worship, life of worship. Okay, it's living towards God. It's continual awareness of God. And David says this: "I've set the Lord always before me." And that's the attitude. Peter uses in deliberate contrast to the false teachers who are far from proper behavior towards God. They may say all these things that are philosophical and theological, but their life was far from it. No godliness. So emphasis that true knowledge of God will manifest itself in the reverent worship of God and respect towards fellow believers. Now we go into the last category of relationship. It says kindness or brotherly kindness. To verse 7. It basically is what? Uh, phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love. It involves serving one another. The concept of laying one's life for a brother. What does that mean practically? I think one of the ways is to pray for one another. Okay. You know, love for a Christian brethren is a clear mark, a true mark of a true disciple. Okay. This is another area where you, Peter writes this, I believe, is that because the false teachers were deficient, their lives were matching what they were saying. Okay. And the true mark of kindness rejects any type of prejudice, any type of class or race, or any distinctions thereof, or forms of exclusion, of elitism in a Christian community. There's absolutely no place for that. You know, although most of us here are Asian or Korean, it absolutely doesn't matter where we come from. Who, what color of our skin, what we look like. Okay? You know, if I had it my way, I wish we had more diversity here. That we could represent, that, that it's a true Christian community. goes beyond any cultural barriers. Okay? You know, John MacArthur says this, discipleship is nothing more than more or less than a friendship with the spiritual perspective. Nothing more than a friendship with a spiritual perspective. We have a lot of friends here. But how much of our relationship is with a spiritual perspective? So that's a question I lead on for you today. You know, one of the fears as a leader, one of the leaders of this church is that people come to church, they'll listen, sit here, listen to message, enjoy songs, but they'll leave without knowing anybody. Some people could be years, maybe. That's one of the greatest fears. People could come to the cornerstone for years or a very long time without really developing relationships with other Christians. Christians are called to this. Peter's clear command in this text. Inspired by God. Okay. Brotherly love. Practice that. And lastly, Finally, it culminates 
there's sort of a crescendo in the ingredients uh, Paul puts out, uh, Peter puts out here is love, agape. Because what does it say? God is love. First Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is love. It means sacrificial, selflessness. Love is selflessness. Sacrificing for one another. Beyond Christian community. You know, in a nutshell, love is what? It is seeking the per others, other person's highest good, even at the highest cost to ourselves. It is seeking the highest good of the other at the highest cost of ourselves. But how many times do we actually count the cost? So that stops us or prevents us. Now it's interesting. Um, I went to a business seminar. And basically, the conclusion was, life is just full of contracts. One contract after another contract after another contract from every conscious moment. Okay, you go to school, what do you go to school? To get a degree. When you get a job, you go to work, what do you go to work? They pay you. So on and so forth. So the question I, f I would pose today is, is there a contract for you to come to church in your mind? I know there's no written contract, but is a contract for you in your mind that you have with God for you coming to church today or coming to church on any Sunday or serving? That's a question I laid to you. So in summation, these characteristics are, basically these seven characteristics are very typical of the New Testament. It basically deals with what? These all culminate in what? We do these to what? As I said earlier, because God is holy, we strive for these things to be holy. Holiness. You know, in the New Testament, you'll never see holiness in terms of law. You must do this or else. It dictates to us what we ought to do, what we should do. So what it does is, in a marvelous way, in the New Testament, the Word of God appeals to our reason. So it goes back to knowledge. Appeals to our understanding. Why does Peter say this? Because of false teachers again. Okay. What the faith we have is not a faith of just illogical things or unreasonable things. These things appeal. Holiness appeals to our reason. With our reason, we could strive for holiness. Do you see that? It's not a command, clear command of law. But the Word of God shows us, dictates to us what we ought to do. It should be out of what? From what God has already done again. And what He already has done for your future. That's why we should strive for holiness. Let's examine the consequences. So the knowledge of God is beginning and continuance and goal of Christian life. These seven characteristics, verse 8 says, to be abound. Okay? When we possess these things, knowledge of Christ is real. It's not just mere on the surface level. It is personal. Okay? And verse 8 tells us what happens, the first consequence of possessing these godly qualities. It's a positive one. 
So when you reason, add these virtues, you gain spiritual success. You, you supplement these faiths um, to your faith, you will diligently grow. Okay? It says, if these things are yours abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Okay? The knowledge, it says here, when we grow, we will be fruitful. It uses the opposite word in verse 8. It says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see this as an amazing thing when unbelievers live a vibrant life. We are not barren. Okay? Here it says, if you don't do these things, you'll be barren. You'll be fruitless. You'll be like an unbeliever. That's an amazing statement. That you'll be like an unbeliever. That you are useless like an unbeliever as a Christian. And that's a point none of us want to go to. So how can we be fruitful? There's one time you want to be some you want to have some fruity things in your life. Okay? If these things be in you, it says in verse 8. When you remember the responsibilities of your salvation, you will come to the result of fruitfulness. Okay? You know what? When you don't see fruit in your lives, you're just under struggle after struggle after struggle. And it's a daily battle. We know we fight all the time, but it's just struggle after struggle. That it's hard for you to come to your knees and praise God for your life. You can't see any fruit in your life. See if you're pursuing these seven characteristics. See if you're remembering what God has done and what God has done for your future. If you believe in the realities of God, what God has done for you, you will bear fruit. You will not be barren. Matthew 7, Jesus said what? You shall know them by their fruit. Okay. You know, in Philippians 4, Paul relates to the fruit of your heart is giving money to those support ministries. Money the Philippians give. It's winning people to Christ and His kingdom. Because basically, in summation, Peter is saying that there's no fruit because... You're not taking up the responsibility to remember. You have forgotten the riches in Jesus Christ. The sufficiency in Christ. You have forfeited the confidence in your salvation. It is not your salvation that is missing. No. So this is a different aspect. It is, we're still talking about, Peter is definitely addressing Christians here. It is not the salvation is missing, but obedience is missing. Why? What is the barrier? Sin. Plainly put it, sin. So let's um, examine the negative aspect of this a little deeper. The word barren is closely more, the actual word is argos. The real, the closer word is idle. Laziness. Person who is basically unemployed, another way. Okay? So person who is unemployed and idle. Someone who is, does not is not a, a productive part of society. Okay? And Titus 1.12 talks about idle bellies and laziness, gluttonous. In a secular sense, again, it's unemployed. Okay? 
What do we do with these Christians? Same concept applies. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, and brother continues to live in immorality, what? Turn him over to Satan. Matthew 18, when someone who does not, um, when the church discipline takes place and does not repent, what do you do? Treat him like an unbeliever. So therefore, in God's eyes, you are useless as an unbeliever. Although you're a Christian, your salvation is not in doubt. It's not a jeopardy here. But your life is just not focused, has forgotten, not remembering what God has done and, and what is locked up for your future. And not striving for these seven things. He, doesn't, he hasn't lost his salvation. But in a way, give him back to that kingdom where he came from. And that's a sad state, isn't it? That's a spiritually, that's a sad state. means basically producing no good for God. Spiritually useless. Spiritually abandoned. That's not the barrenness we want to come to. Consequence number two. Not when you don't possess these qualities. Verse 9. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to blindness, has forgotten that he was cleansed by his old sins. Now this is a negative aspect in opposition to verse 8. Peter again is dressing Christians here. It explains the blindness Peter talks about. It's interesting. And those of you who are optometrists, this is spiritual in a, in a more scientific word. Spiritual myopia. A new word I learned this week. Spiritual myopia. Another word of saying blindness. I want to sign a little bit intelligent and show you that bit, a little bit of study. Yet. Or short-sightedness, nearsightedness. Why? This is interesting. You're blind and short-sighted. How can those two things happen? If you're blind, you're blind. You're blind because you could only see yourself right here. You could only see your life for who you are only. You see yourself and you're just interested. This is selfishness. Therefore, you become blind to, what, again, what God has done and done for your future. So you're so blind, there's no way you could... Um, Pursue after these seven characteristics. Okay? Because his perspective is only right here. What is that? In earthly things. Things of passing things of their lives. They're interested solely in what earth and this world will do for them. That's, that's what Peter is talking about in terms of blindness. Losing basically focus on eternal perspective. It's a sad state when a Christian loses his sight spiritually and loses his path. There's a lot of talented people. There's a lot of talented people here. Very smart people. Capable people. But spiritually, sometimes we all get caught in just right here and don't use the gifts of God for His kingdom and eternal purpose. What God has given you. One example I thought of and I racked my brain and this is the best I could come up with and I hope it applies. How many of you know who Len Bias is? Len Bias. Len Bias. Some of you are basketball fans. In 1986, he went to University of Maryland. 1986, he was number two overall pick of the Boston Celtics. He was going to join Kevin McHale and Larry Bird. They would have won three more championships. Probably Lakers would have lost, wouldn't have won the 87 and 80 championships if Len Bias played. After month after he was dra drafted, number two overall. 
number two of the entire NBA of the Boston Celtics, going on one of the best teams at that time. He died in his dorm room of cocaine overdose. This is a guy who had, in basketball terms, had a future, 22 years old, one of the best players around, coming off, and you're joining the best team. Okay. One of the best teams. It's like today, like Jason Williams of Duke, come in and join the Lakers. How marvelous would that be? As I was preparing the sermon, I thought about that. <laughs> How marvelous that would be. It was sort of like that for a Boston Celtic guy. But it all came crashing down a month later, and his life ended of cocaine overdose. How, what a waste. But we ask ourselves, are we lend biases of the Christian game? That God has given you these various talents in your lives. Everybody's talented in your own right. And God has given you that. Every single ounce of it. But are we fully using it? Are we overdosing on sin and what the world has to offer? After blindness, verse 9, Paul says, forgotten. Forgetfulness. This is not just forgetting, oh, I forgot to do, pick up my kids, or pick up my dry cleaning, or pick up stuff at the grocery store, or I forgot to do oil change, or rotate the tire. This is willful forgetfulness. It's not just, how oh, I accidentally forgot. This is desiring to forget and not to remember. Willfully. You know, we should be going the other way. You know, if you're a stagnant Christian, basically you are blind and you're forgetting. If you're not growing, you're basically stagnant. You're regressing. Either you're progressing or regressing. We should be on this upward curve constantly. So every moment you lose, so this is redeeming your time. Every moment you lose, there's no flat period. Because flat periods, opportunity cost lost. Right? Those of you who know a little bit about econ, opportunity to cost lost. You can't get that back. Instead of the upper course, so if you're stagnant, you're actually not growing. You're forgetting. You're blind. <coughs> you know, I, I went to this new company about a year and a half ago, and I saw their financials. They, in three years, they grew 7%. And they were sort of proud of themselves. Wow, they're getting... So I told them flat out, I sat in the um, executive meeting, I told them, if I were the owner of this company, the board of directors, I would fire all of you because in 7%, I could put that money in the bank and make more money because the rate of inflation is about 5 6%. So in three years, it's about 18%, and you guys sat here and got paid to do 7%? I could have done this without nothing. Do you see the same concept there? If you don't grow as you should, you're losing opportunity cost. You're not reminding yourself. You're forgetting. So this is an active Christian life, folks. It requires active part on your life. Perseverance, going after everything with every ounce you could possibly muster. To know that, that the realities of God, what He has done and He has already done for your future. Not to be barren or to be blind or to be forgetful, but be fruitful. So lastly, of the four categories, what Christians must remember to do. Number one, verse 10. It says, be diligent, giving diligence. 
Do we give diligence in a short period of time? No, this is a marathon, folks. This is a lifelong condition. It's permanence. This growth, active growth, has to be permanent. The NIV translation goes like this. Therefore, my brother, be all more eager to make your calling an election sure. What does that mean, election sure? It means assurance. Okay? Why does Peter say that? Does God, is God unsure of election? Of course he is. He exactly knows who is elected and who is not elect. He is sure. God is not the issue again here. The issue is us. What relates to election here is us. Why? Because how do we prove our election or disprove it is by our behavior. So Peter is saying, by your behavior, make your election sure. So that you are fulfilled with, um, with the promise that God has already made to you. That your life is, shows that you're completely secure. If you do these things that are listed here, remembering what God has done and adding to your faith the seven characteristics of a vibrant Christian, you'll be certain. There'll be not only doubt, no doubt in your minds, anybody's mind. It should be evident, clear. Why? Because we should shine the Christ-likeness that we're capable of to the world. So the world may know through our lives that we are Christians. This is not fall from salvation we're talking about again. We're not, that salvation being lost is not an issue. Is that we are so mired in sin, we have forgotten and we're blind, we're not pursuing after these characteristics, so we lose our confidence in who we are as Christians. The richness. Okay? It's like having a rich father. Billionaire father. Pretend your father is, in worldly terms, Bill Gates. Jack Welch is of the world. But you live in a pig pen. In the worldly terms. Spiritually, that's what happened. That's what basically the picture you form is not being diligent of your election. It's not making your election firm. So the result is this text says, so you will not stumble. Obviously, it doesn't mean that we'll never sin, but it means that we will not fall into the spiritual misery, being downcast spiritually. That we're vibrant Christian. That we are, we are able to counsel to spur other people on, to exhort others, to encourage others. We get into that position. You know, even all Christians, barren Christians, or vibrant Christians go through tough times. It's how we respond to that. This is a journey, right? This is the journey of every redeemed person. But the goal of our journey is in verse 11. An entrance will be ministered unto you abundantly, in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the promise. Just abundantly. Entrance is abundant here. It will be ministered to you abundantly. Okay? In other words, if you are fruitful, your entrance will be abundant in the kingdom. Okay? This is not just, oh, barely creeping into heaven. You know? Just sliding in as our elevator closes. It's not, the picture is not that. The picture is, an Olympic athlete 
when he wins the gold medal, sitting on that, standing on that stand. That's the picture. Getting in, knowing that you have given your effort. When Christ rewards you, you stand on that stand. That's the idea of getting in here. That's why it's abundant. This is a Christian who could clearly see his, in current life, a Christian who could clearly see his past, what God has done, and clearly see the future, the promise he has given, as we are partakers of, and exercising these seven things wholeheartedly. And that's the picture of an Olympic athlete, an Olympic class Christian. Okay? Someone who could see the past, the future, and living vibrantly in the present. In the original text, in the right order, this reads like this. It says, For richly you will be supplied to your entrance into the internal kingdom. I like that translation a little bit better. It's the fullness. You're experiencing all the riches. And that's what we're to remember. And lastly, let me just culminate this. What, is, what are we to remember these essential truths? Verse 12, verse 12 tells us, For this reason, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them are established in the present truth. Okay? Paul, Peter is saying basically, my ministry is ministry of reminding you of the greatness of God, of all these things. So therefore, I will remind you of all these things. Okay? The divine power. Why does he do that? Why is remembering so important? Look at the terms of Timothy. I have all details here. That's, I'll just summarize it. Look at Timothy. He was wavering. Things got difficult. He was vacillating in his doctrine. He was fearful of his position. And Paul encourages him, don't let them look down upon your youth. Hold fast, in 2 Timothy 1.13, hold fast to the forms of sound words which you heard from me. So therefore I remind you, Paul reminds Timothy, remind you to stir up the gift of God. Again, the gifts that you have given to in your way, which is through the laying of my hands. Preach boldly and mightily. That's what Paul reminds Timothy of. Just examine Timothy. When you get disheartened, even Timothy, Paul, guy who met Paul and worked with him. You know, I think if I met Paul, I'd do a little bit better. But that's my pride saying that. I should be more humble. But even Timothy wavered after meeting, working with great Paul. So what are we to remember? Number one, the realities of our salvation, right? Verse 1 and 2. To those who have obtained the precious faith by the use of righteousness of God, Jesus Christ. What God has done. Number two, remember the richness of your salvation. In verse three and four, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to the glorious virtue by we, which we have given to us exceedingly great and precious promise that through these you may be partakers of divine nature having escaped corruption in this world through lust. We have received the great promise of our future. Remember that. Number three, responsibility of our salvation. Remember those seven things. Remember the virtue, goodness, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance or patience, godliness, brotherly love, and finally love. 
Okay, that is a responsibility. Don't forget that. That is your responsibility of your salvation. And lastly, again, the result and reward of your salvation as an Olympic class Christian standing on the gold medal stand. Because you have done you have done everything you could do. You have pursued after wholeheartedly. God is, God is not interested in marginal stuff. Okay? God is not interested in marginal stuff. You should go in there full force. So just as a final thought, conclusion, I would say this. Have you forgotten your salvation? Have you forgotten the riches of it? Have you lost sight of your future hope? Why are you struggling with life? Why aren't you pursuing these things? You know, culmination, as I was just filtering through everything, basically comes down to the Lordship of Christ. How much is Lordship of Christ real in your lives? You know, the entire text here is basically remembrance and the essence of our Lordship of Christ. Giving all diligence, making our calling and election sure. It's basically, Peter is saying, you need to remind be reminded, remind yourself. Peter, as a, um, as a leader, apostle, he's appealing to you. How are your relationship in your family, with your co-workers or friends of, around here? Is Christ evident in your relationships? Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers and friends, co-workers, bosses and subordinates. Is, is Christ, Lordship of Christ, evident? in your lives? Is it overflowing? It's just oozing out. It's not barely living as a Christian. The Christ-likeness is just overflowing and oozing out. Again, let me just read and end with reminding you, as Peter reminded the readers in this letter. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them and are established in the present truth. Let's pray.